welcome to the next episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. On this episode, I get to interview Sydney Bolins, the subject of a short documentary called The Gender Line. Sydney's life, in a way, is really two lives, and maybe three and maybe four lives. Sydney was actually born as Cindy, a woman, and Cindy's talent was really quite amazing for a musician in the 60s and the 70s and coming up in this rock and roll era. And really, this episode is a masterclass in life, a masterclass in how the soul can move. And I think by listening to this interview, you get to go on a human journey, but also the soul's journey. I just want to welcome Sydney Bullens to the American Filmmaker Podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I really appreciate your time and your journey as a creative human on this planet. Well, thank you. My first question for most guests is, where did this creative journey begin and when you first noticed you might be creative and, and where that led? I really started wanting to be have something to do with music when I was about four years old. That's my first conscious thinking. I really, I was, you know, born in the 50s and, and came to, you know, the, the music of the late 50s and the 60s influenced me as a child. I loved Chuck Berry. I loved, you know, the, the old 60s groups you know i loved the uh, motown and the beatles and the rolling stones and all that that was my upbringing and i just knew that that's what i wanted to do and in terms of my creativity i mean i started playing guitar around 10 but even before that i started making up as i said in my head making up songs you know i can't say i was writing songs which of course you i i do but in my little six, seven-year-old brain, it was making up songs. And so I, I made up songs. I made up music. I can remember riding in the back of my parents' station wagon before you had to wear seatbelts and in the very back, you know, laying on the floor of the station wagon with my ears, with my fingers in my ears so I could hear myself just making up tunes, you know, just making up tunes, just hours after hour, and I never really thought about it. It just progressed. And of course, then you, you know, I started playing guitar and started, you know, singing song, learning people's songs and, and singing for other people around the house. Or my parents would want me to sing for the, you know, gathering, family gathering or something like that. And then I started, you know, in high school singing in bands and things like that. So the first instrument was the guitar. The first, well, I wanted to play drums, but my parents were not, they were, we had five, four siblings. So with a house full of five kids, the drums were not my parents' favorite thing. So it was either guitar or piano, but I taught myself. I didn't have lessons. My older brother played guitar. He fooled around with it. So I would sneak into his room and grab the guitar and just literally put my fingers someplace until they, on the fret board until they made a musical sound. That's how I started. From there, you're playing music. 
And like, when did you start to realize that music might be a thing that could, could take you places, take you around the world, help you refine this talent as a songwriter and as a human? Yeah. Be, because your human journey is in there as well. I, I really th- thought early that this is what I wanted to do. Like as a four, five, six, seven-year-old, I had that kind of light in my eyes about... I had a visceral reaction to, to music and not just rock and roll, although that's what I really wanted to do. But my parents listened to jazz, so I can remember growing up listening to Miles Davis or even the big band music. My parents were not musicians, but they had an appreciation for music. I mean, we came, I came from a very, you know, middle class, not a lot of extras kind of upbringing, white, you know, upbringing in Massachusetts. My mother used to make me sit down and watch Leonard Bernstein on because she wanted me to get a classical education and he, he had his show on, which was, I, and I'm grateful for that. But it was really jazz and, and blues, and which my parents didn't listen to, but that I gravitated to through rock and roll. So I knew at a very early age that I wanted to be on stage. I wanted to, to play an instrument. Singing was kind of secondary. I wanted to write. I wanted to be these people. You know, I wanted to be a musician, not just a songwriter or a singer or a guitar player. It was more of a being, you know, a full body reaction to music. Did you notice that you would be the lead singer and did the lead writer of these bands that you started to join. Yeah. Yes. I always saw myself as, as the lead. And although I loved, you know, when I got into bands at which I didn't play in too many bands, I went right kind of from high school to being, I had having my own bands, you know, but, but I did, I do enjoy playing music with people, you know? And so it wasn't so much that I had to be, it wasn't an ego-driven thing. It was just that I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted to hear. Uh, I still do if you're in my band. You know, I mean, I've, I'm totally open. I just recorded a new album. And, and of course, they're my friends playing with me. And, and I, I love the input. But I know what I want to end up with, you know. And I, sh- I like to shape the music once it's coming into me. I saw myself as a leader in my own career, meaning of my own music. And I didn't want anybody else to, which became a problem when I was, you know, started being a professional as a, as a woman, I wanted to be my own producer. I wanted to be my own band leader and, and was. And eventually, you know, when I got into the music business as Cindy Bullens, in the late 70s, it, it wasn't really accepted. Yeah. What, what was the problem with accepting the music early on, you know, in your life and is your career as uh, Cindy? Being a woman. Yeah, being a woman. In fact, and I, believe me, I was completely naive coming you know, going to Los Angeles from New England to be a musician. And I 
you know, hung out in recording studios and, you know, I sang back up on people's songs and things like that on records and stuff just from hanging around and kind of got my sea legs under me and got hired to do some stuff and started doing that. But once I started doing my own demos as a, as a songwriter and, you know, rock and roll artist back then, I can remember being at Cherokee Studios, which was a very popular and big studio in L.A., and I happened to be friendly with the owners, and they used to let me hang out there, and I met, that's where I met Elton John, that's where I met Ringo Starr, that's where I met, you know, Gene Clark and the Birds and Dr. John and, you know, a whole bunch of other people, and I, it was fantastic to be around those people, but... So I was in the studio and I was making, I, I can't remember if it was during my, I think it was my own demo and I was making a demo in that studio. They had given me some studio time and Bob Ezrin, who was then Alice Cooper's producer, was in the control room. He just happened to be in another studio producing whoever. I don't remember who it was. It might have been Alice Cooper. It might have been somebody else. And so when I came from the studio into the control room after doing a take on something, he looked at me and he said, you know, it's going to be twice as hard for you to make it than anybody else. And I looked at him. Now I'm 20, in my early 20s at that point. And I looked at him and I said, why? And he said, because you're a woman. And it was the first time it had ever occurred to me that I, that there would be any, I don't even know how to put it today, you know, 50, 40 years later, you know, why there would be any blocks or a different path for me than there was for Mick Jagger or that there was for Paul Simon or there was for Lou Reed or there was for, you know, anybody else. Why would there be a different path for me? It never occurred to me that my gender would have an impact on my going forward. And unfortunately, he proved to be right. For someone who was in that studio in the 1970s, watching you make this demo album, how would they describe you as a, as a human and as a creative person? You know, the, the sound of the voice, the lyrics, but then also the physical being. Because obviously, this is a big wall. Yeah. You know? I don't know how anybody else described me. I mean, I guess I could think back to what I heard people say. I know that I, I was an androgynous human being, physically. I knew that already, you know? And at that time, I, I already knew that I internally felt like a man in a woman's body, but I didn't say it. I didn't live that. I was just Cindy Bullens and, but I was androgynous, meaning you couldn't really tell if I was a young man or a young woman at that time. And so that's how I physically looked. How I sang was interesting. It's a kind of a, and I may go off the path here a little bit of the question, but <clears throat> my first demos, I had a low voice even as as a woman, not as low as it is right now from age and because I've transitioned, but I sang in a low voice, but I worked with a producer, Bob Crew, who produced Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons and a bunch of people. 
And he was kind of the first professional producer to discover me. And I started singing backup on his stuff um, before I did this demo. And he wanted me to sing high. So, so eventually, like if you listen to my first two albums, which I can barely listen, the songs are good for that time, but my voice is very high. It wasn't me. And I think that, and I've never honestly thought about this before in this way until this moment, but maybe that was part of the whole gender thing too, is that I was androgynous and I kind of had an androgynous voice, but the producers wanted me to sing higher, more in a high-pitched girl voice. So I don't know if that's the case or not, but I just thought of it. But anyway, so I was just a, a female rock and roller, but at that time, there weren't that many. There wasn't any. It was before Pat Benatar. It was before Joan Jett. It was before... There was a band called Fanny Out, which were female musicians, but there were, that, they weren't a single art, artist. A Susie Quattro, who was a, a female bass player back then, not when I was making the demo, but a little later she came out. But there weren't any female songwriting, electric guitar playing, rock and roll females out there. I mean, I, I was, you know, I jumped off pianos. I put the guitar between my legs. I did back bends. You know, I was, you know, wild on stage. And... But in those days, it was Linda Ronstadt, Joni Mitchell, Bonnie Raitt, who I love and who's one of my dear friends. And I was a, been a fan of hers. She was, she was, but she was in blues at that time. She could play her butt off, you know, and, but she was a blues, she was in the blues category back then, not in rock and roll. That's who I thought of myself as just a rock and roller who wrote songs. But the combination of... Being my own songwriter, being my own, wanting to be my own producer, record producer, playing my own parts on the guitar, and being the lead singer, being an individual, not being a band. In other words, I wasn't a band, I was Cindy Bullens. That was something that people just didn't, hadn't seen before, and they didn't get. It's interesting because the musicians, they saw you. Yes. They saw the talent. They seem to understand this creative journey that often doesn't look like what maybe someone on the business side might see. Right. What was that like having the musicians see you and like know that you're every bit of a force of nature as one of them? It was wonderful. I had, yeah, it, and it's a great question because I've never really thought about it, but... No musician said to me, you can't do this. In fact, the musicians and the other songwriters, male songwriters, and I say male, not that the female ones weren't, but I hung out mostly with, well, with both, but male and female musicians. Not, not one of the male musicians said to me, you can't do that, and you're not good, and that you'll never, that won't happen. Most of them if not all of the people who surrounded me in those days, and I was very fortunate to be surrounded by names you would know, and some you wouldn't, but some you'd look on the back of some of those old album covers and see who they were. I 
they all championed me. You know, they all, you know, thought that I was going to go places. And they, they, I mean, I, from the beginning, I got the best musicians to play on my demos, you know. And so, yeah, I guess that made it even harder for me to understand what Bob Ezrin was saying to me. Now, Bob Ezrin was not being mean to me. He wasn't, I don't think he was trying to discourage me. I think he was, he was giving me a point of fact of how the music business was in those days and still is in some cases. But it was shocking to, to, to hear it from him that, I would, that it would be harder for me. And it ultimately was because of the business people. It was always the business people who came be and still is to this day. The business people. Now that I'm a trans man and I've made my first album, I'm, you know, people are, the business people are kind of looking at me sideways going, well, we're going to put out a transgender person's music? After, you know, so it's, it continues. As I was listening, it made me think of a moment that I had, and it's nowhere near, nowhere near what you're talking about. But when I showed up at my first film festival, it was around 20, and all I ever wanted to do was make films. And when I got to the Tribeca Film Festival with my short film, all I would hear is, you don't look like a filmmaker. You don't look like a filmmaker. And my short was odd because it was the only short film in the American student category that was shot in a South American country. I cast street kids. We mixed them with an American acting girl. So it was just this fusion. And as I kept hearing that, I didn't know what to think. And it was traumatizing. And then I would keep applying for grants and then eventually I would be not brown enough. Mm. So I would have to apply for the Tribeca All Access grants and the different grants. And they're like, yeah, your story's good, but you're not brown enough. And I didn't know what that meant. And it was always from people who weren't the creative people, the musicians, the creative community that supports the individual who creates these, these wonderful songs or movies. Mm -hmm. So encountering this huge obstacle, what did you do after the early demos? Well, I did, I did get a record deal. Of course, I went on the road with Elton John as a backup singer. And I had done a few performances with Bob Dylan in the Rolling Thunder Review, which I was supposed to go on the whole thing. But then I met Elton John, crashed a party at this Cherokee Studios, and he asked me to go on the road. So I had to choose between Bob Dylan and Elton John. And I was a nobody, but that's the truth. I did, I had to choose between going on the road in 1975 with either Bob Dylan or Elton John. And I, I chose Elton John and I often, or sometimes I wonder what would have happened if I had chosen Bob Dylan. It was, it was, and I had to choose in one day. It wasn't like I could sit on it. But anyway, I ended up making my first album in 1978. And that did come out on a label. It's a long, circuitous route, but it did come out through a production company on a label. And I did have a semi-hit record with my first single, Survivor, which was nominated for a Grammy for Best Rock Vocal Performance, which was surprising. I didn't win, but, but it was with 
I was in the same category as Bonnie Raitt, who was a friend of mine then. I think it was Ricky Lee Jones, Bonnie Raitt, Donna Summer, and Linda Ronstadt. And Donna Summer won. <laughs> For a hot pants or hot legs or something like that i can't remember but it was a disco song not rock and roll but that's the women thing too you know pile them in there and anyway but what a thrill that was to be nominated and and then they dropped they dropped me because they got the united artists was my record label and they got gobbled up by emi or another big conglomerate and so that there went that I got I got signed by Casablanca Records by Neil Bogart who was a wonderful wonderful man and he got me and I thought wow he got me and he really wanted to sign me and right after he signed me he got sick and left the label and that's when the other guy came in and said you know we don't want you to write your songs we don't want you to produce your songs we want you to wear dangly earrings and tight tank tops and, you know, be more female. And I left. I left the label. And I didn't think it, I would be leaving, f when I say for good, I mean for 10 years, but I did. I left and I left the, ended up leaving the business for 10 years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, collectively, when your talent is appreciated by Dylan and Elton John, and you have to make a one-day choice. But some other person who might not understand that music talent comes in and just plays it by a formula. Mm -hmm. Hey, one, two, three, four. There you go. That's, that's insane. And so what did you do? I did leave the business. I mean, I didn't want to. It wasn't a, like an immediate plan. I did leave that label. I mean, when I had that meeting with the then, the the president who took over for Neil Bogart, and he gave me that kind of ultimatum, and I I just said I can't I can't be who you want me to be. I can't do that. And I left, and I actually got married, and I had a couple of kids in the in the mid eighties and uh, left the business. And it wasn't until 1989, good, you know, I left, that, I left that label, I think, in 81. So it wasn't quite 10 years, but in 89, I made an album for MCA Records, and Al Teller, who was the then president, got me. And, but by then, I was, you know, in my early 30s, and at that time, you know, being in your 30s was like you were over the hill. And yeah, I, I've, I, I, I've hit all the bumps in my career, <laughs> all the timing bumps. But well, and yeah, and even that that level of detail is interesting because I think that thinking needs to go away. Yeah. And, and it's still present within the entertainment industry. And I think that short term thinking is really just a business tactic that you learn in business school that you're just springboarding from one fast money grab to another. And I think if we really look at the businesses that we like and the businesses that entrepreneurs aspire to be mm -hmm. and executives want to be a part of, it's because they respect the long-term journey mm -hmm. and the long-term commitment. 
And so when they find a piece of talent, they're not trying to exploit it as fast as possible, but they're actually trying to be with it for a long time, you know? It's one of those things where the good people, it used to be that you, you developed talent, but over, and so you kept at it for a long time. But then in the 80s, it started to be, it started to shift. And so the music business wanted people, MTV really killed the music business because you had to look good. It was all about how you looked instead of how you sounded. If you, and, and so MTV came, came to be in about 1980 and it was the demise of good music. Now it's come back. There's good music. Of course, there's bad music, too. I mean, it's subjective, but it really has now, today, in the last, in the 2000s, in the 90s, it was still sexist and ageist, and really ageist, because the, the women started doing better, but, and given more opportunities, which was great. In the 2000s ageism started to break down and that was great and I had somebody say to me I was in Nashville uh, a couple of months ago I was making my record and my producer is my age Ray Kennedy who produces Lucinda Williams and Steve Earle and you know tons of other people and he's also one of my best friends but anyway he was producing and he said you know Today, in today's music, if you're really young, you're, you have a chance. But if you're really old, you now have a chance. It's like the legends, even though I'm not a legend, but except maybe in my own mind as the joke goes, but, but I am of that age now we were talking about before we went, before we started recording, that of the mastery, you know, like the people in, in the 50s, in your 50s and 60s and 70s and onward are, I mean, if, you're, if you've been at this for 30, 40 years, you and you've stayed vibrant and open and you've grown, you're growing, then you're a master at what you do. And so that's the, that's, if you, you know, I've kind of gone off the track about the long-term, short-term thing. But nowadays, you know, I don't know what my future is. All I know is that I still do what I wanted to, I still want to do what I wanted to do at four years old. And now I'm, don't, it doesn't have to be, quote, rock and roll, it's Americana now. That's my, I guess, my genre, although my album's more rock and roll than that. But I still am who I am. I transitioned into, uh, from female to male now. So I read as a male more than I do as a female. But I'm still androgynous on the inside, you know? I'm still a, you know, I, I, don't, I won't say I'm completely balanced, but I still have the female part of me both as both physically what i mean is internally i guess is a better word and my experience my upbringing but now i have the male part of me that that was always kind of subdued infusing some of my music 
And, and here I am, you know, again, just wanting to be that four-year-old who plays music on stage with great musicians and doing my thing. <laughs> Listen, no, I veered good. way off the track. No, no, so. no, veer. That's what this is for. This is the veer. You're going to be like... Well, well, I mean, honestly, these are some of the most important lessons that no one's ever going to share. We're shattering illusions for an entertainment industry that will exploit... And in the path of exploiting people's creativity, they're going to create carnage. I see it with filmmakers. For every poster child that is held up, there is 10 filmmakers, if not 100, that will never break through. And it's strange because where we're at is the age of authenticity. Mm -hmm. Content is both content storytelling, is both king, queen, and everything in between. Because there's so many people out there and each one of these people is different and like stuff that's different mm -hmm. and giving people the choice to, to find what they like and listen to what they like, because that represents an internal spirit that is bigger than your physical being. And I feel like oftentimes in the entertainment industry, creative people encounter these very, very physical people, you know, who are just, which I get, we, we need the business side of it. But I also, I've seen positions where even someone's, if that person was more creative, they would have actually survived longer in the business sector because they would have seen, seen the talent mm. because I think the talent somehow is able to run the marathon and outlast. It's always going to be a conundrum for the creator to have to engage with the establishment or the business side, whatever you want to call it, the money, everything that a creator do does is judged, period. The, a painter, a filmmaker, a sculptor, you know, a potter, a, you know, a musician, obviously, you know, any kind of creator, writer, in order for you to get ahead, you, it, it's, a, it's subjective. You know, somebody has to say, oh, you know, you deserve to be heard. You deserve to be read. You deserve to be seen. You deserve, you know, deserve, or you should be seen, heard, or read. And that's our conundrum as, as creators. I mean, I was just in Paris a month ago, and I went back to the Musée d'Orsay to, to stand in the room full of Vincent van Gogh's because I have a song in a 1999 album that I wrote after the death of my daughter called Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth called The Lights of Paris. And I talk about the room full of Vincent van Gogh's I Couldn't Tear Myself Away, struck by light and color, pure genius on display. Vincent van Gogh died before anybody knew of his paintings, except the villages that he lived in and his brother. You know, he and, you know, it's just one of those things where we have to put up with people judging us. Now, in the day of technology, in this day of YouTube and in this day of Facebook and Instagram and every other thing, it's a blessing and a curse because uh, the blessing is, is that anybody who creates can be seen and can be heard, 
That's a blessing. It's also a curse. And because not everything that's really good gets airtime still, you know. And some things that are really not that good get lots of airtime. It's just in a different venue. But, you know, I guess the older you get, the more philosophical you get about it. And because I was very... I, I won't say bitter, but I was angry after I left the music business in 1981 because I know, I knew I had as much talent as anybody out there. And I mean, I'd been nominated for a Grammy. I'd been, as you say, I'd been, I'd worked with some of the greats and Dylan and, and Elton weren't the only people. And, but I couldn't it wasn't going to happen for me because some guy up in some office thought I was too this or too that or not enough of this or not enough of that and it had nothing to do with the music nothing and you know I still run up against that today now being a trans man I just made my first album is Sydney and it is going to come out, but it might be me putting it out because, no, you know, we thought, my producer and I thought that I might be able to get, not a, I don't want to deal with the big record companies, but I've had independent deals before and as Cindy, and which worked very well. But now I can't even, well, I won't say I can't, but so far I haven't been able to even get an independent deal. And I know now it's because nobody wants to deal with that other story that Sid, Sydney Bullens what used to be Cindy Bullens but now we can't we can't just put out the music because we have to talk about the story they don't want to go into that story it's too it's an extra added thing so one more time it's not about the music and uh, so i'm in the middle of that right now and i'm trying to figure out okay and for me i i, I just want people to understand i don't give a crap about being famous or yeah we all want to make money and I need to make a living and I luckily have made my living at music you know but you know I'm not a big star or anything but you know I mean we want I we all want to do what we want to do and we want to make money at it and we want to be successful so it's not about that it's about being seen for who you are and in my case, being heard as a musician. And there's this gap between people who know you and see you and who say, this is a great album, this is great music or whatever. And I'm not saying, I, I, I know I'm a good songwriter so and I make good records, so it's a good record, you know? And so it's not, it's that gap between people who say, that's the best record I've heard in a long time, or I love that record, and it's, you know, the songs are great, and it's a bit, well, I haven't made an album in 10 years, so it's definitely the best album I've made in 10 years. And, but then there's that gap between those people in your circle, and it could be a wide circle, and the, even the critics, you know, who say, yeah, this is great, and all that stuff, and the wider audience, you know, there's that gap. You have to go through some 
kind, if you're me, I guess, some kind of what I call a crack in the universe. You know, there's got to be some kind of bridge that takes you across from your own universe to the masses. And some of us never get there. It doesn't mean we're not good at what we do. You know, I, I hate to hear your story about, you know, people judging you by your color or your, your, your race or your, you know, I, I, for me, my gender, my, you know, I mean, if you're gonna judge me, judge me on my art. Go ahead and judge my art, that's fine. You don't like my songs? Fine, go f move on, you know? I'm sure there's somebody you like out there. But don't stop me from being who I am. You know, that's the thing that drives me crazy about any of us who are trying to get ahead, even people who are trying to get ahead who aren't a creative people, but who are just in a minority or, you know, whether it's women or race or gender or whatever it is. And I'm not comparing all the troubles of everybody to each to themselves. I'm just saying, don't stop me. You know, let me live my life. Let me be who I am. And uh, there's the other thing though. I'll, I'll I, and a friend of mine says it to me all the time. You'll all eat, cause I wanna quit sometimes and just say, ah, I'm done. You know, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. I'm gonna work in Home Depot or I'm gonna, you know, do something else, you know, just, you know, drive lift. Not that those things are bad things to do. It's just, what am I going to do? You know, and I've done other things, you know, in the past 10 years, but I will always be, there'll be always a part of me that's a creator and that is compelled to create. All of my best, my best material, I, I don't even know, my best products, they're not products, but my best work has been work that has been, that I've had to do. I've just had to do it. And sometimes it's a song, sometimes it's an album, sometimes it's my one person show, whatever it happens to be, I'm just compelled. I have to do it. And so I, probably that will be continue until the day I die. It's a really special thing to have that thing motivating you because I think that's one of the best lessons that, you know, creators have to create. And sometimes once you have the hours under your belt, 10, 20, 30, 60, mm -hmm. 100,000, and you have to make what's inside of you. And in a way you're speaking to the, the creative community, people who will support your dreams or your actions mm -hmm. and people who won't. Can you talk about that, your creative community or people that have stayed around in your life to help you create? Yeah, it's, I've been very, very fortunate in that people around me have encouraged me through the dark times, you know, have my creative friends as well as my family and stuff like that, but really my creative friends who remind me of who I am and what I do and that I do it in my own unique way and they lead me to believe 
although I don't always believe it, but I do it anyway, that my, what comes out of me as what comes out of every creative person is unique. It's my voice, whether it's a film or a painting or a book or a song. It's my voice. It's my interpretation of a moment in time, you know, or a subject matter. And my feelings about it. And I've come to know in my old age now that my perspective, and I'm a very simple creative person. I'm just, what you see is what you get. There's not a lot of flowery stuff. It's just if I'm writing a song, I have to write a song. A songwriter has to write a, an entire story in three, four, five minutes. Five is at the most, unless you've got a long instrumental or something. But in words, unless you're, you know, some of the old older songs were longer, but, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But for me, it's, you know, four minutes, let's say. You have to tell a whole story. And you have to make an impact of some kind, whether it's tragic or loving or funny or, you know, or just, you know, fun itself. Like you have to, you have to stir something in somebody. Something has to stir, whether it's the mind or for me, it's more the heart. I go for the heart and the, the guts, you know, I, I don't, my, my songs don't necessarily make people think, but they make people feel and and that I know I, I was going to say I know in my old age that I do that now I don't sit down and say okay I'm going to make somebody feel something today you know it's what comes out of me which is why we're creative people you know you make a film you can you see it you know even if you don't know how it's going to look at the end you feel what it need, you, it needs to be. And when you're watching your film, you know, and you're editing it or whatever, you know how it needs to feel, right? Yeah, there's this internal voice. I don't know what it is, an it, instinct. It's, a, it's an instinct, it's a voice, but, it, but it's a feeling. And I think that's what, what our gifts are. What our gift is, 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 is the feeling when I walk into that room, when I was there three weeks ago in Paris, in that room full of Vincent van Gogh's, which I had been in 20 years before, after my daughter died, was the first time I went to Paris. And feeling that deep grief, but being in that room full of Vincent van Gogh's and feeling his genius come through those paintings, the color, the light, the shadow, the the expressions on his self-portraits or you know his his people's faces, but also in the landscaping and the the landscape paintings and everything. Just you can feel, you can physically feel what he I mean, you don't know what was going through his mind, but you could feel whatever that nonverbal feeling was that he wanted he was trying to portray, that he was trying to convey, rather. And 
to me, that's the important thing. If somebody comes to see me play, I did one song today at the film festival after The Gender Line, which is the documentary that was made about my life, the documentary short, played. I played one song, not a whole concert. And I had to, and, and my, and I think people left feeling something from that song. Of course, they felt something from the film. Now, I didn't make the film. I was just, I was not the filmmaker. The filmmaker happens to be a genius, T.J. Parcell. He's a wonderful, wonderful filmmaker and director. And he conveyed, well, there's another example of creativity. He conveyed my life in 13 minutes, the essence of who I am in 13 minutes. That ain't easy. And he knew what he wanted you to feel about me and my story. And that's his creativity, you know. My creativity is singing you that one song at the end to put a kind of an exclamation point at the end of the film. This is who I am. This is me. This is me singing you a song and what are you going to feel from it? And uh, I have to leave you an impression. I don't have to, but my wish is that you will get to see me as who I am through one song. And if I can do that, then, you know, that I've done what I've set out to do. What was it about those Van Goghs that helped inspire this song that you wrote after your daughter's passing? And then, and then what was significant about it's always tragic when parents outlive their kids. And so I don't know what, you know, I know that I'm dealing with, with my mom and my dad at the moment and, you know, creativity is going to help me process that. I hope, can you talk about that and, and then where it led? My daughter, Jessie died at 11 years old in 1996 from complications from a cancer diagnosis and I found myself about three months after her death I wrote a song called Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth three and this is kind of the short version of it which shocked me that I had written a song I was absolutely shocked and horrified that I had written a song about the death of my own child and I was horrified because I, it was no parent should ever have to create something after the death of your, their child. I can't even describe why I was horrified. And I, it's been 20, almost 24 years now, and I I'm, I'm still can't describe it. But, but at the same time, I felt horrified, like, oh, my God, I just wrote a song about the de Jesse's death. I felt that tiny tiny, tiny, tiny little spark that creativity gives us. This tiny little, little thing inside of me in this, you know, three months after your child's death, you can't even walk. You can barely go to, I had another child to take care of, but you, you, you know, you don't, nothing. I mean, three years after, it's still crazy. 13 years after, it's you're still insane. But three months, you're you just 
you just don't know who, what's going on. And you don't want to know. You, you don't want to live. But anyway, three months after that song, I wrote another one called In Better Hands. And then three months after that, I wrote another one called A Thousand Shades of Grey. Now, then I went to Paris. And all these songs I was compelled to write. I didn't want to write. It wasn't like I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write a song about the death of my child. They were just, it was almost like I had, it was those three moments where I had written those three songs. It's like I had to grab my guitar and I had to like spill out this emotion about that moment in my grief. So I went to Paris because I wanted, I needed to, about nine months after her death because I needed to do something I had never done before. I needed to just do something. And I went with a friend of mine and I'd never been and was walking the streets of Paris. And so when I got home and I went to the Musée d'Orsay and I went to, you know, other things, but I basically walked for four or five days that I was there. And I came home and I wrote a song called The Lights of Paris. And basically the song is about my different experiences in Paris. And again, in four minutes, about seeing the Mona Lisa, about, you know, the, the magnificence of the, the big boulevards and the quaintness. I didn't use these words, but the quaintness of, of the small streets and the alleys and, you know, and then but going to see Vincent, the, the room in Vincent van Gogh, it inspired that line in the song, but it also impacted me in a sub, I, I don't know if it's subliminal is the right word, but in a deep way, not subliminal, but in a deep way about this man's commitment to his art and his need to create in spite of, talk about obstacles, you know, and uh, it impacted me and, and, it, and I came home and, and having seen all that and, and especially that room inspired me to write the song, which, so I wrote The Lights of Paris. That was the fourth song that I had written in nine months after Jesse's death. And after I wrote Lights of Paris, I thought, oh, because I kept thinking, well, okay, I've written this one song, and I, but I, I really honestly didn't think I would ever write another song or do anything else in my life because my daughter had died. My future went out the window with hers. I didn't know if I could ever again do anything. So writing The Lights of Paris, I said, oh, I'm not going to stop creating. And so having written that song, I then allowed myself. So I wasn't horrified by the fact that I was writing songs about the death of my daughter because it felt wrong. I allowed myself to create. And therefore I did over the period of almost two years, write 10 songs that became an album called Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth which became not only my biggest commercial success, which came out of the blue, which I didn't even ask for, I didn't want, it came to me. I, I wrote those for myself. My husband at the time didn't, had, didn't hear any of the songs until they were recorded. Nobody did. 
because they were for me, not for anybody else. Record company came, had through a friend of mine, wanted to hear it, put it out, and it became my biggest commercial success, became, you know, a big deal. But more than that, and more importantly than that, I started bereaved parents and people who were going through tragedies started getting the record and it was helping people. And that started me on a 15 year journey of, of, of doing death and dying workshops and playing for people, bereaved parents and all over the world and you know, stuff like that along with my, what I then called civilian gigs. And so that's when creativity keeps us alive if I, I it keep kept me alive, literally alive, I don't think I would have killed myself, but physically, but kept me from being in a bed with the covers over my head for years. The album is like the crack in the universe <laughs> or something about it. I don't know if it's yeah. the album or the yeah. process of the expression or the uh, energetic resonance around the album so that when people hear it, they are transported to a place, a feeling, mm -hmm. and that feeling is important to them to overcome something or to deal with something. That album, Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth, which is now 20 years old, did transcend. It is a transcendent album, and I can say that because I don't, I feel like I was a conduit for the songs. They are the purest songs I had ever written to that point and have ever written beyond that. I've made three, four albums since then. Nothing, no song I will ever write again will be as pure as those 10 songs. They came from a place in me that had no creative filter. They just came. And... The miracle of that album, which I didn't even think about, somebody else said it to me, some critic or some something, you know, and it was critically acclaimed and won some awards and all that, said, you managed to make an album about the death of your daughter that is completely and totally universal. I never once, you wouldn't know it was about the death of my daughter. You know it's about loss, you know it's about... Grief, you know it's about resurrection, you know it's about love. They're basically 10 love songs. And I went, oh, <laughs> oh, well that, you know. And that's, that's the transcendence of that album, is that I was able to write it from my own experience, but that it could affect so many people in their own, who are going through their own experiences and not just the death of a child, although it, it is still, I still get emails and letters and Facebook messages from people around the world who've just heard the album, you know, 20 years later. It's still being used, it's still being used as a bad word for it, but it's still being shared as a tool for people. And that's, it, I, I, to me, that's, it's my legacy. That album is my legacy. Now, my new album is really good. It's called Walking Through This World, and I've made, and it is loosely about my transition, 
But that album, Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth, is my legacy. It, it's my legacy. It will live beyond me. After the process of coming out with the album, Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth, did the process trigger something inside of you? And then what happened that began the transitioning? Well, the, everything is connected, as we know. Everything is connected. What that album did for me was give me purpose in my life where I felt there was none. And the purpose at that time was, first of all, and every bereaved parent will tell you this, their purpose is to keep their child's memory alive. And, and a child can be, I mean, my mother lost my sister. My sister was 60 years old when she died, my older sister. But my mother still lost a child, lost her firstborn. So it doesn't matter how old, you, and you, maybe it's a sibling or, or, or a parent or a, a, a friend, but, but losing a child is different because you do, you're not supposed to outlive your child. But that process gave me purpose to move forward. And then, and it actually brought me back into what we were talking about earlier, the music business. But I got to do it on my terms. I said to this record company who, and this pres record company president who wanted to put out somewhere between heaven and earth, which I had already pressed up and, you know, produced and pressed up and everything with lots of help from lots of people that you might know. You know, it was already done because I had done it as a, as, as a charity album for my daughter's foundation. But I said to, sat in a room and I said, to the record company president, I'd rather sell this out of the back seat of my car than not have the promotion and the publicity and the thrust of what you want to do with it be in full integrity. Because this is about my daughter, it's not about me. And it was, it was done in a very good way, but in a very, feeling way and that that was great and but it allowed me to go out and play the music to go out and see people to go out and perform and I toured you know for that album for quite a while a couple of years and or even more I got to go around the world and and play for people and 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 so that started me and then suddenly they said well we want another album and I was like what you know like, no, I, I don't know if I can write another album. This one is what I'm doing. But I did, and and so it kept going from there. I didn't stay with that company because they dissolved, but so it gave me life and started my career back. And then, of course, there are dips and valleys and everything else in the last 20 years. I wanted to quit the business again, and I did for a while. And then in terms of my transition, I was not doing, I was doing a little bit of music with my trio, The Refugees, I have a trio, and we were out on the road a little bit and doing some stuff, but I was thinking, you know, it's maybe over for me in terms of the music. And so I was kind of in a lull and, and then one day, and I won't go through the whole story, but one day I, I, just my mind exploded and I 
and through a friend of mine called me and said he was transitioning, who I hadn't seen him in about two years. And suddenly my head exploded and I said, oh, and I knew that I had to address the one thing that I had never addressed. And, and that's when I decided to start transitioning. And that was seven and a half years ago. And so everything leads to everything else. But, but at the time when I decided to transition, I believe that I finally had the psychic space to look at myself. I had been married and had kids and Jesse had died. And so there was all, all this stuff that I was living through where I didn't have space. I was bringing up kids. I was dealing with the death of a child. I went through a divorce. I, you know, all of that stuff. I did not, this is in retrospect now, in hindsight, I, I thought this, that I didn't have that space in my brain to look deep within myself and address the one thing I had hidden away. You know, I wasn't in abject grief. My daughter Reed was married and already had a baby, so she had her own family. I was divorced and had been single for 10 years. So suddenly I was, oh, I can live for myself. That's how that happened. You really did live a full life as Cindy. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of amazing that you were able to have a daughter and a family and pass on the creativity. And then all of a sudden you realize that there's still some, some work that needs to be done. Well, that's the thing. I, we were talking earlier, you and I, about, I said, my life is not nuance. It's all sledgehammers. And that I've lived, I feel like I've lived a hundred lifetimes in one and I'm not done yet. When I decided to transition, I thought, well, if I, ever wanted another relationship there goes that who's going to want an old trans man you know and you know, it's, and i thought you know I, I, and i i i'm not somebody who goes looking for i was just perfectly fine perfectly happy by myself i had grandkids i was very involved in their lives and and i wasn't doing a lot of music but a little bit and you know still being creative and all that. And I thought, well, I'll just kind of coast for the rest of my life. And then, ah, there comes a compulsion, creative compulsion. I had to write a one-person show. And I thought about it before my transition because I had already had an interesting life. And then I thought, but I never had the arc. It was never complete. And then when I transitioned or was transitioning, I thought, oh my God, there's the arc, you know? Young rock and roller, sang with Elton John, gets married, has kids, I lose a child, I go through that, and now I've transitioned into a man. And so I was compelled, there's that word, to write a one-person show. And so I had to find somebody, not to help me write it, but to help me contain it. Because I, you know, 40 years is a lot of material to put in a in a show, plus live music, which I knew it had to have. So I knew the arc, and I knew the, what was the stories or the pieces that needed to go in. I knew what songs I wanted in there, but I didn't know how to put it together. And lo and behold, I find somebody who lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, this woman, and long story short, she becomes my wife. So you just don't know, but that compulsion to create you just never know where it's going to lead. So maybe it doesn't lead me to a million dollars and a, 
uh, a million views on YouTube, but my life unfolds and I am in a, uh, we got married two years ago and she was my director first and, you know, we had a professional relationship and then, and then we didn't. So you just never know where life's going to take you. And I certainly did not ever think I would be in a relationship, nor did I want to be. So it took me a while to get used to the fact that I was, oh, this is happening. This is going to happen. And uh, she's the best thing that's happened to me. And, you know, one of the best things in my life. Who knew? And she was able to see you. That is the sentence that you nailed it. She sees me. She, and now if you talk to her, if she were here, she would tell you she didn't know anything about transgender, but she has her own, had her own internal stuff, which, and I I don't want to tell her story, but she'll tell you that she knew from the second day she met me that I was the person she's been looking for. I didn't know she was the person I was looking for until later than that. Not that I didn't like her or anything. I just didn't. I was very focused on writing my show. I did that for 15 months. And then she told me that she had other feelings. And so we went from there. But she sees me. And I see her. And I see her. And that's what we have. It's a miracle. I say that in the gender line, the documentary short. It's a miracle. Another crack in the universe. (laughs) Another crack in the universe. Yeah, my cracks in the universe are different than what I think they should be sometimes, you know, or they come from places where I don't know where they're coming from. But that's the whole point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Of staying alive. It's just, you know, if you stay alive long enough, if you, it, it, you know, I have to, this is what I tell some of my young people that I mentor. You just have to stick around to see what, what's around the next corner because you just don't know. And sometimes it sucks. You know, sometimes it's horrible and tragic and terrible, but I didn't die, you know. I, I thank God for people and friends and family. You just never know what's around the next corner. You just got to stay there. You know, life is precious. You know, even my daughter's death, and, you know, I know we have to end, but even my daughter's death, though I would trade what I have today for her to be alive and be 33 years old and a gorgeous redheaded young woman. In her death, my life emerged. And, you know, she's the prow of my ship. And everything I do is somehow she directs, I think. You know, it's a miracle. I think it's really important to pass along wisdom or experience is a broader term to young people. And, you know, I, I'm not a kind of mentor like a school person would be, like a teacher, you know. I'm not, I don't teach music. I don't teach, you know. I just show up. And sometimes it, there's specific young people that I, I work with on different things. But more than not, not it's going into schools or, or organizations where I can what I call be of service and just tell my story. And I've been doing it even before I transitioned, I would do it. But, but now for me, I think it's important as a transgender person to be an activist in that way. I'm not a political activist, although, you know, 
I am political and will fight for my rights and rights of others. But it's more personal, you know. If that one kid who, like I went to a local high school here yesterday morning, and they viewed my film, The Gender Line, and then asked questions, and, you know, we talked. And if one kid in there can either, A, have a different understanding or, or, or a deeper understanding of being transgender or even being human, you know, <laughs> you know and, and of tragedies and being able to move through them, whatever it is that they get. I mean, I don't know what they get out of it, but if they can come away with, it, with an understanding that you can survive pretty much anything, and if there is a trans kid in there or a gay kid and they understand that there is support out there for them. I mean, I don't pretend to know what anybody gets from, from me showing up. But if I tell my story, I know or I feel that it's impactful. And to me, yes, can I mentor a kid one-on-one? -on -one? Yes, I have, and I will. And, and it could be an hour, or it could be weeks, or it could be just an ongoing relationship with a young person, which I've had. But more than teaching them something, it's just being there for them and being supportive of who they are and letting them know they're seen, which, you, which I think is the most important thing that we can do for each other as human beings is to let people know that we see them you know and i was going to say for who they are but we may we may not even know who they are you know so it's really to be there and to allow them to unfold as human beings they they are but to see them and just acknowledge what you see. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I'd really like to thank Sydney Bullens for these life lessons that I don't think we could have experienced without hearing your story and really experiencing it through your words. I will put all the relevant links to Cindy Bullen's and Sydney Bullen's music, as well as links to the film, The Gender Line. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please share this episode with a friend, subscribe, and rate the podcast wherever you listen. Thank you, Michael Deller, for the music provided for the podcast. We are trying to produce episodes as fast as we can, so please support us to help us on this journey. I am your host, Josh Hyde, and we will catch up with you next time on the American Filmmaker Podcast. <laughs>